So for those that don't know me, my name is Chad Squirtieri. I am a law professor at the Catholic University uh, of America, and uh, it's great to be here today. Um, the morning, uh, this morning's conference got off to a great start, and I know we're looking forward uh, to the third panel today, uh, which is titled the FTC versus the Roberts Court, uh, the major questions, doctrine, rulemaking, and more. So we're joined by th uh, three expert panelists, uh, two in person, one virtually, uh, who have each contributed to this area of the law, and I look forward uh, to hearing what they uh, have to say. Uh, so first we'll hear from Professor Thomas W. Merrill. Professor Merrill is a Charles Evans Hughes Professor of Law at the Columbia Law School. Uh, pre previously, he served on the faculty at Northwestern and Yale Law Schools. From 1987 to 1990, he was Deputy Solicitor General at the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, Professor Merrill has taught administrative law for many years and has written extensively about many topics, including the Chevron Doctrine, uh, which he has recently published a, a spectacular book uh, just this year on. He earned his BA degrees from uh, Grinnell College and University of Oxford, and he earned his JD from the University of Chicago Law School. And I might add, keep that reference to Chicago Law as we go through the rest of the panel and see if we can spot a pattern. Uh, so next we will hear from the Honorable uh, Eugene Scalia. Uh, uh, former Secretary Scalia has a nationally prominent practice in both administrative law and labor and employment law. Uh, he also serves as a senior fellow at the Administrative Conference of the United States and he has successfully challenged a range of regulatory actions including those at the SEC, the CFTC, the Financial Services Oversight Council, and the Labor Department. From 2019 to 2021, he served as United States Secretary of Labor, having previously served from 2002 to 2003 as a Solicitor of Labor, uh, which is the Chief uh, Legal Officer at the Labor Department. He earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Virginia, and he graduated cum laude from the University of Chicago Law School, where he was Editor-in-Chief of the Law Review. Uh, last but not least, we are joined by Professor Jeffrey Lubbers. Professor Lubbers is a professor of practice in administrative law at American University's Washington College of Law, where he has taught since 1996. He specializes in administrative law and related courses and has taught at various law schools in the US and abroad, including in Japan. From 1982 to 1995, Professor Lubbers was the research director of the Administrative Conference of the United States, where he is now special counsel. He is the author of numerous publications, including, as is very relevant to today's panel, a widely cited article entitled, It's Time to Remove the Mossified Procedures of the FTC for FTC Rulemaking. Uh, Professor Lubbers earned his AB degree from Cornell and earned his law degree, as you might have guessed, from the University of Chicago. Uh, so the way uh, today's panel will, will work is we'll start off with each of the, of the panelists. I'll, I'll ask each of them you know, maybe one or two questions. Uh, then we will turn things over to the audience for questions. So please, of course, uh, start thinking about what you might like to ask our panelists. All right, so Professor Merrill, we will start with you. Great. I hope you can hear me all right. Um, and I apologize. Uh, I'm happy to be here, but I apologize for having to appear by Zoom. Uh, so I take it the... Um, the topic of today's panel primarily is whether the FTC has authority to engage in what's called substantive or legislative rulemaking on, on questions of antitrust law. Um, and I'd like to address the question uh, from the perspective of uh, ordinary statutory interpretation as it's currently applied, engaged in by the Supreme Court. Um, I, I expect some of my co-panelists will talk about things like the major questions doctrine and maybe the Chevron doctrine. I'm happy to engage on that, but I think 
There's a clear answer uh, if we just approach this question from the perspective of ordinary statutory interpretation, so that's what I propose to start off with. Um, the uh, case for legislative rulemaking authority and antitrust uh, by the FTC is grounded in a provision of the original FTC Act adopted in 1914. So I think the appropriate place is to start with that. Uh, the 1914 Act uh, contained two uh, primary uh, uh, provisions of regulatory or, or of, of, of authority for the FTC. Uh, one was Section 5, which gave the FTC authority uh, to engage in adjudications uh, to determine whether particular firms or in particular industries were engaged in uh, unfair competition. Uh, uh, th this was a quintessential adjudicatory uh, process. It started with a complaint. There were hearings. Uh, evidence was gathered. Uh, the agency issued a decision. Uh, the remedy was a cease and desist order, but even that could only be enforced by a court uh, uh, to whom the order was taken by the agency for, for a judgment enforcing it. The second regulatory authority of some uh, importance was Section 6. Section 6 authorized the FTC to engage in investigations uh, of corporations or particular industries and to issue reports uh, about what it found, uh, which would be uh, designed to illuminate uh, the conditions in these firms or industries for the purposes for the general public or for Congress. Uh, now, uh, buried, if you will, within Section 6 of the FTC Act uh, was a provision, uh, uh, subsection G of the Act. Uh, and subsection G included the language authorizing the Commission uh, from time to time to classify corporations and to make rules and regulations for the purpose of carrying out the provisions of the Act. So that provision, uh, which was in uh, Section 6, the investigatory provision, uh, is uh, the language that uh, Chairman Lena Khan and the other uh, majority members of the FTC are relying upon in support of the proposition that they have legislative rulemaking authority uh, over antitrust matters. Now, I think the structure of the Act uh, immediately calls that into question. Um, uh, Section 5 is really the only regulatory provision in the original Act, and there's not a single mention in Section 5 about rulemaking uh, of any sort whatsoever. It's all adjudication. Uh, the only rulemaking uh, provision is the one in Section 6, which, of course, is limited simply to investigations, not to any sort of regulatory action. Um, the Supreme Court, of course, is uh, uh, somewhat loath to engage in uh, legislative history or look at legislative history these days. Uh, but that's, I think, primarily when uh, somebody's uh, offering some kind of tidbit from the legislative history to suggest what the subjective intentions of the legislature might have been. I think the court is more willing uh, to look at large objective facts uh, reflected in the history of the evolution of a particular statute. In this case, I think that's quite significant. The, uh, the history, uh, and this is quite objective, uh, tells us that the Section 5 originated in the Senate. The Senate wanted to pass a bill that contained the power to engage in case-by-case -case adjudication uh, with respect to matters of unfair competition. Uh, the House had a very different bill, which simply authorized the FTC to engage in investigations. The conference committee decided that the proper thing to do was to paste these two ideas together, uh, and the final act then reflected both uh, the Senate uh, proposal for adjudication and the House proposal for investigations. Uh, but it's significant that the uh, 
the House proposal, uh, which did not have any regulatory authority in it at all, uh, was the one that contained this subsection uh, G of Section 6, authorizing uh, from time to time uh, the Commission to issue rules and regulations to implement the Act. Um, uh, now, by itself, the word Act would suggest that this authority extends throughout the statute to both Section 5 and to other provisions of the statute. But the history would strongly suggest that the reference to Act was a holdover from the House bill, uh, which contained no authority beyond the investigatory authority, and so the reference to Act, uh, which comes from the House bill, uh, was undoubtedly uh, there because of the uh, the act at that time of the House passed the bill uh, was limited to investigations uh, only. Um, so I think the structure of the act strongly indicates that this uh, general rulemaking grant was not intended to authorize any type of uh, rules having the force of law, as we call them. Um, this is strongly reinforced by some interpretive canons. Uh, one interpretive canon uh, which has been around since the beginning of the American Republic, if not before, uh, is that uh, interpretations by agencies of the statute that are authorized to implement, which are contemporaneous or nearly contemporaneous with the enactment of the statute, are entitled to significant weight. Well, from the day one of its existence, the FTC uh, uh, indicated uh, repeatedly that it was only authorized to engage in adjudications uh, as a regulatory matter, it had no authority to issue regulations. And in fact, uh, in 1922, the annual report of the FTC admonished uh, various lawyers who might be reading the report uh, that they should avoid the common mistake of thinking that the FTC could give them uh, any advice uh, in the form of orders, rules, or regulations uh, unconnected uh, with any particular proceeding before it. In other words, the FTC's power was only to engage in adjudication, not to issue forward-looking uh, advice uh, that would pr apply prospectively. Uh, uh, another long-standing canon is that interpretations uh, uh, that have been around for a long time and have been consistently adhered to by an agency are entitled to significant weight. Uh, here, uh, it's significant that the FTC, for roughly the first 50 years of its existence, uh, never uh, regarded itself as having authority to issue legislative regulations. Uh, uh, this is confirmed by the Attorney General's uh, uh, report on the administrative process. Uh, there was a monograph prepared as part of that report about the FTC in 1939, which reported the agency's view uh, that nothing in the statutes administered by the agency makes any provision for the promulgation of rules applicable to whole industries. Uh, so uh, for roughly almost 50 years, the agency repeatedly interprets its authority as not to authorize anything that might resemble legislative rulemaking. In 1938, uh, the Act was amended to uh, specify that the FTC had authority not only over uh, uh, unfair competition, i.e. antitrust issues, but also uh, unfair and deceptive practices, i.e. something like uh, false advertising. Uh, and so the uh, agency's authority was expanded in that sense, but it continued to proceed entirely by adjudication. Uh, it, there's good evidence that Congress accepted this understanding. Uh, 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 Congress passed several narrow grants of rulemaking authority uh, in, in the latter part of this uh, first 50-year period or so, uh, but always uh, very narrowly delimited to particular industries. Uh, there was something called the Wool, Labeling, Wool Products Labeling Act in 1940, the Fur Products Labeling Act of 1951, and the Flammable Fabrics Act of 1953. These were, I think, 
primarily uh, oriented toward deceptive, uh, false and deceptive practices, uh, uh, but they were rules, uh, but they were authorized by very specific legislation that Congress passed, again, suggesting that Congress understood that the agency had no generic rulemaking authority. Uh, the only discordant element uh, in the interpretive process is this uh, decision by the D.C. Circuit in 1973 called uh, National Petroleum Refiners versus FTC. Uh, the, this was a, a case was generated when the FTC, as part of, I guess, the first energy crisis, uh, promulgated a trade regulation, it was called, requiring uh, gasoline stations to post the octane rating of gas uh, on each pump uh, at the gas station. Uh, uh, this was challenged as beyond the, by the petroleum industry as beyond the authority of the agency because it had no authority to issue a regulation like this, and the district court agreed. But when the case went up to the D.C. Circuit, a panel of judges that would have to be characterized as an all-star panel of activist uh, D.C. Circuit judges uh, reversed, uh, and the D.C. Circuit held that subsection 6G, uh, the section that was buried in the provisions authorizing investigations by the FTC, in fact was a general uh, grant of authority to the agency that included the authority to pass, uh, adopt legislative regulations. Uh, basically, uh, it was a kind of a faux plain meaning interpretation. The court uh, said that the statute, the Victoria grant of authority for rules and regulations was facially ambiguous. Uh, Section 5 did not say it was the exclusive source of regulatory authority uh, and that uh, lots of recent decisions by courts indicated that rulemaking was very helpful and advantageous and therefore the ambiguity should be resolved in favor of giving the FTC this broad regulatory authority. It kind of flipped uh, the standard assumption that, you know, agencies only have the authority expressly given to them by Congress uh, to say that if there's an ambiguity, we presume the agency has broad authority unless there's something expressly di disclaiming that. Um, uh, a couple of interesting things happened after uh, National Petroleum Refiners in 1973. Uh, at the same time that the D.C. Circuit was uh, revising the authority of the FTC by judicial interpretation, Congress was considering uh, whether or not to uh, expand the FTC's authority in certain ways, including uh, granting uh, express authority to engage in legislative rulemaking. And in the FTC Improvements Act of 1975, Congress did adopt such legislation. Uh, the rulemaking grant was interesting for a number of reasons. One was that it, it was different from ordinary rulemaking under Section 553 of the APA, which is just notice and comment, because it imposed some additional restrictions on rulemaking, the rules had to be submitted to the House and Senate before they went into effect, for example. Uh, the rules uh, also had to um, uh, be uh, determined in a hearing before the ALJ, not before the Commission. Uh, they had to be supported by substantial evidence, uh, and so on and so forth. So this is a more restrictive grant of rulemaking than Section 553's uh, rulemaking provision. Uh, the statute says explicitly that this is the exclusive authority uh, of rulemaking of, by the agency with respect to uh, uh, false and deceptive practices. Uh, uh, and so, uh, by implication, uh, the, the, any rules in that area, which has been the one area where the FTC has been most active in promulgating sort of forward-looking guidance, have to comply with this new uh, grant of rulemaking authority. Then there is a sentence which is I will call the savings clause. Uh, uh, and after saying that this is the exclusive source of authority for rulemaking, uh, the so-called savings clause says, 
in proceedings, in the, the preceding sentence, I mean the one that says that it's exclusive, um, shall not affect any authority of the commission to prescribe rules, including interpretive rules, and general statements of policy with respect to unfair methods of competition in or affecting commerce. So I think that uh, the FTC leadership will undoubtedly cite this sentence and say that, well, what that means is it preserves the National Petroleum Refiner's interpretation that the FTC, uh, with respect to uh, unfair competition, i.e. antitrust matters, uh, has authority the authority that the FTC, that the, excuse me, the D.C. Circuit recognized to promulgate legislative rules. Um, I don't think that holds up but uh, upon closer examination. Um, for one thing, if you look closely at the language of the so-called savings clause, uh, it only mentions two types of rules. The APA has a whole uh, cluster of things that are rules, including not just legislative rules, but also procedural rules and policy, general statements of policy, and interpretive rules. And the only things that are mentioned in the savings clause with respect to competition are interpretive rules and policy statements. And I think that probably what happened, by the way, the savings clause was added by the conference uh, committee uh, with no explanation. Um, I think what probably what happened was that somebody pointed out that, well, since 1968, which precedes this whole period of controversy, uh, the FTC and the Justice Department had uh, promulgated so-called merger guidelines. Uh, which were being used by both the uh, FTC and the DOJ Antitrust Division uh, to review uh, proposed mergers. Uh, and so you wouldn't want to have this uh, language of exclusivity about rules uh, uh, to be interpreted as suggesting that perhaps uh, these merger guidelines are impermissible. So in order to save the merger guidelines, uh, this, uh, this sentence in effect was written the way it was. Now, the merger guidelines are not legislative rules. I would classify them as a policy statement uh, informing the public as to the kinds of factors and, and conditions that the two agencies will look to in deciding whether or not to take a position uh, in, in a future adjudication, either in court or before the FTC, as to whether a merger should be approved or not. Uh, they're not binding in the way that legislative rules are thought to be binding. So I think that the savings clause, for that reason, really should be interpreted as being limited to interpretive rules and policy statements. Another thing to keep in mind is that ever since 1914 with the passage of the Clayton Act, both the FTC and the, and the Justice Department have had concurrent authority to enforce uh, most of the antitrust laws. The Justice Department has always proceeded by adjudication and enforcing the antitrust laws. It goes to court, it files a case, it argues that something violates the antitrust laws and it either wins or loses. It would be extremely odd, I think, for Congress to grant the FTC, the other agency, which also proceeds by adjudication, authority to promulgate legislative rules about uh, antitrust policy uh, when the DOJ does not have authority to promulgate rules about uh, antitrust policy. I, I don't think this would go down very well with the DOJ, and I don't think that it makes any sense uh, to give uh, one entity uh, this authority but not the other. Um, I think probably, therefore, that the... Um, uh, the Improvements Act properly interpreted means that uh, any authority, the reference to any authority in, in matters of unfair competition refers to any authority as correctly interpreted, not the authority as construed by national petroleum refiners. After all, if this case does get to the Supreme Court, as I think it might well if the FTC carries through on its threat, um, uh, the uh, Supreme Court's not bound by anything the D.C. Circuit might say 50-some uh, years ago. Um, 
uh, about statutory interpretation in this area. Um, the last point I would make is that there's another statute which is also relevant here, which is the stat a statute that was passed one year later in 1976, which essentially codified uh, the pre-merger approval process. Uh, uh, and this, this is uh, 45 U.S.C. 18A. Uh, subsection D of this new statute, uh, in effect, is a grant of rulemaking authority to the FTC and the DOJ concurrently uh, to promulgate certain rules about the pre-merger approval process. Uh, these, this grant is rather interesting. It's basically a grant of procedural rule authority. They're supposed to they have authority to promulgate procedures uh, for this process. It also contains uh, an authority to uh, uh, create exemptions. Uh, uh, one clause says that the uh, rules uh, the, the DOJ and FTC can jointly uh, decide to uh, exempt classes of persons, acquisitions, transfers, or transactions which are not likely to violate the antitrust laws. They would be exempt from this pre-merger notification requirement. I think it's significant that Congress, even after this turmoil over the National Petroleum Refiners and the Improvements Act and so forth, passes a statute that basically confers specific rulemaking authority, very narrow rulemaking authority, uh, on the FTC uh, in this area. Again, the assumption of Congress would have to be uh, that there was no pre-existing authority to promulgate such rules under this ancient provision of subsection G of section 6 of the original act. So in other words, I think that um, uh, if the Supreme Court gets its hands on this, and it, it, it very likely will, this has got to be considered an important question. Uh, considerations about the structure of the act, uh, about its uh, interpretation over time uh, by the agency, consistent interpretation over time uh, by the agency, uh, about the um, uh, understandings of what generic rulemaking grants like this were understood to mean in 1914, uh, and the, the fact that Congress has repeatedly legislated on the assumption that the FTC does not have generic uh, legislative rulemaking authority would all convince the Supreme Court, not just uh, those who adhere to the major questions doctrine, but maybe even the entire court, uh, that the FTC does not have uh, this authority. Uh, so uh, that's my confident prediction. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here uh, with you, and a pleasure to be back at the Mayflower, by the way. I'm hoping that uh, I can have uh, as much fun uh, with you all today as I did just a week ago when I was here with uh, 300 people, a rocking band for my son's wedding reception. <laughs> so this will be a different kind of fun, but hopefully in its own way it'll measure up. Um, I thought I would start with the court side, the Roberts Court side of what our panel is about, which is the uh, Roberts Court and the Federal Trade Commission. And you know, I, I, I think in some ways of what I call the the, the new Roberts Court, which is to say the Supreme Court under uh, Chief Justice Roberts with the addition of the three appointees by President Trump. Because I think with those appointments, uh, the court is a substantially different court than it was uh, prior uh, to the, the Trump administration. And I think one way in which uh, the court is really uh, pretty remarkable right now is it appears that administrative law is an area where uh, those three justices and the three Republican appointed justices who are, were already uh, on the court are particularly like, likely and successful to achieve uh, six justice 
uh, majorities for different propositions. I think they're indications that uh, each one of those six justices cares uh, you know, greatly uh, about issues of administrative law, which is a little bit unusual to have such a large number of justices who do. And of course, others on the court uh, do as well. Justice Kagan, uh, in particular, had uh, been a professor of administrative and constitutional law uh, before becoming Solicitor General. Um, and, and then when you examine uh, each of the justices, I think it's fair to say that the three appointed during the Trump administration, each of them is more interested in, uh, than the justice he or she preceded in identifying appropriate limits on the power and actions of administrative agencies. So to take them one by one, uh, I think plainly uh, it would appear that uh, uh, that Justice Barrett is more interested than uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, in uh, a constrained view of the administrative state, uh, uh, Kavanaugh more so than Kennedy, and, and even, uh, and this might surprise some people initially, but even uh, Justice Gorsuch more so than uh, Justice Scalia. And just to take that example, uh, my father, Justice Scalia, was for most of his career uh, in, uh, as a judge, a very strong proponent of Chevron deference, uh, although in the last few years you saw that that uh, uh, confidence in deference doctrines waning. And also, uh, Justice Scalia was skeptical about uh, aggressive use of the non-delegation doctrine. He wrote an important opinion in that area, uh, saying that it was a difficult doctrine to apply and not one that he was inclined to give great weight to. Uh, Justice Gorsuch is distinguished in part by strong views absolutely to the contrary on those two issues. His uh, probably best known Court of Appeals decision uh, before going uh, on the Supreme Court was uh, a pretty strongly worded criticism of the Chevron Doctrine. And he's also been a strong proponent of a reinvigorated non-delegation doctrine. So it's a different court. Uh, it's a court uh, with a number of justices very interested in administrative law. Uh, and a constrained view of the administrative state. And I think that this is one of the principal areas where this court will make a mark and where a large number of justices will be able to achieve majorities. Another area appears to be religious liberties, uh, but certainly administrative law is a foremost area, I think, of likely agreement uh, among not just a majority, but perhaps at times a, a supermajority of the court. So that's the court. Uh, let me uh, return to the Federal Trade Commission then. And you know, I, particularly when it comes to the question that uh, Professor Merrill was addressing, which is the rulemaking authority of the commission when it comes to uh, unfair methods of competition. Uh, you know, the Federal Trade Commission is a really good law school exam on current issues in constitutional and administrative law. And let me start with the two issues I mentioned earlier, deference doctrines and the non-delegation doctrine. So um, Professor Merrill gave, a, I think, a very good, very uh, thorough explanation of why the uh, Federal Trade Act is best interpreted not to confer substantive rulemaking authority on the FTC over so-called unfair methods of competition. It gave the agency investigative authority over that. Uh, it can bring actions over it. Uh, but I think that by far the better view, despite that DC Circuit decision, is that as enacted, uh, the law did not give substantive rulemaking authority in the area. Uh, now, uh, 
I think National Petroleum was wrongly decided. Uh, I, I think that you shouldn't get to Chevron step one if you were inclined to apply Chevron. But I think, and Professor Merrill, uh, I think, disagrees on this and uh, may, might address that later. My view is that this is an area to which the major questions doctrine will apply. Now, I think most of you are familiar, the major questions doctrine uh, applied in the West Virginia EPA decision last term, also applied in the decision regarding the OSHA vaccine mandate, uh, holds in so many words that if an agency is gonna do something really big and consequential, and, and let's add controversial, uh, it ought to have clear authority to do so. That's the nub of the idea as it's been expressed by the court in one decision. It's based on the view that Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes. So if it's an obscure, uh, vague provision and being used to do something seismic, uh, the major questions doctrine is likely to come into play. Now there are uh, additional considerations the court has cited. Uh, if, for example, uh, an agency is finding an interpretation in such an obscure provision which for decades it did not. Uh, the courts indicated that would be another reason to invoke the major questions doctrine. Uh, as Justice Gorsuch suggested, if an agency is acting in an area traditionally the province of states, again, uh, major question doctrine more likely to come into play. But I think that uh, as the doctrine has been put forward by the court and given its rationale, it's a major question. Uh, whether the Federal Trade Commission, in fact, does have substantive rulemaking authority with respect to unfair methods of competition. As the Supreme Court itself has said, and I'll uh, give an excerpt of this in a moment, uh, what's an unfair method of competition? The court has said that's an elusive concept. Uh, that's a, you know, broad, those are broad words, could uh, encompass a wide variety of things. The Supreme Court has already said this is broad, uh, big stuff. And it's not limited to a particular industry. It's you know, sort of you know, um, American commerce generally. Uh, so I do think that it's a, a broad authority likely to trigger the major questions doctrine. And then when you go and examine the statute, uh, even if you were applying the more traditional approach, or at least what today is the traditional approach laid out by Professor Merrill, the FTC loses. Uh, wheel out the major question doctrine, and it's just it's not even close, I believe. Uh, and the FTC will have a very difficult time establishing that it can adopt a uh, unfair method of competition substantive rule. Let me then come to the non-delegation doctrine, which as you all know, is the principle that uh, it's Congress's job to legislate and Congress cannot wholesale uh, delegate that responsibility to administrative agencies. It's gotta do the big work itself. There's an obvious relationship with the major questions doctrine, which itself is premised in the view that Congress addresses the big issues and agencies uh, play a more interstitial role, uh, non-delegation doctrine is explicitly uh, constitutional. Uh, so in what I call the New Roberts Court, you now have five justices, at least, who are interested in uh, reviving the non-delegation doctrine. The court has not used that doctrine to strike down a statute uh, since 1935, um, but you've got five justices who've said uh, that they believe the doctrine should be uh, reinvigorated and actually made more demanding than it's been articulated by the Supreme Court uh, for, for many years. That's in the Gundy case with uh, Justice Gorsuch dissenting and joined by the Chief Justice, which I think is notable that the Chief Justice joined that dissent.
So you've got a Supreme Court today interested in revisiting uh, the non-delegation doctrine and uh, go back to 1935 when they last wielded it to find a statutory delegation uh, unconstitutional. And it was actually a delegation that looks a lot like what the FTC would be trying to do now. That was a case, Schechter Poultry, under the National Industry, Industrial Recovery Act, where uh, authority was given to adopt uh, standards of fair competition, standards of fair competition. So, you know, let's compare that to uh, 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 rules regarding unfair methods of competition. Seems like just sort of a mirror image, other side of the coin. Um, very similar language. Now, a couple things about Schechter Poultry. It is true that in Schechter Poultry, the court uh, bent over backwards to explain why unfair methods of competition mean something different than uh, uh, fair uh, uh, practices, um, uh, fair, fair, fair competition. Um, so they did draw that distinction. It's, it's, strike, it's a little bit weak, but very important to the court in that case as well was this. They were distinguishing the FTC Act. They were saying, you know, this National Recovery Act is a problem. FTC Act, no, but, you know, but why? And so let me just read this, this passage, and there are others to this effect. Um, the court said, we have said that the phrase unfair methods of competition has a broader meaning, uh, that it does not admit of precise definition. See, they're, they're saying it's pretty broad and loosey-goosey. Uh, it's scoped being left to judicial uh, determination as controversies arise. Uh, what are unfair methods of competition are thus to be determined in particular instances upon evidence in the light of particular competitive conditions of what is found to be a specific and substantial public interest. Um, and then they say, to make this possible, Congress set up a special procedure, a commission, a quasi-judicial body. A and then finally, they say uh, that in the, this Recovery Act, in providing for codes, the act dispenses with this administrative procedure and with any administrative procedure of an analogous character because it was about setting up codes of fair competition, setting up rules. So there you have it. You've got a court that is interested in revisiting uh, the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, you've got the last non-delegation case specifically talking about the, uh, uh, FT, uh, the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission Act, and you've got it emphasizing how it was judicial case by case in nature. Uh, that, I think, also is real trouble for the FTC if it now tries to adopt substantive competition rules. It's gonna have to deal with this problem in the face of a Supreme Court and other courts too that are interested in the non-delegation doctrine. Let me uh, turn to the sort of third part of this law school exam that the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission's exercise in rulemaking, uh, and actually its activities more generally uh, would present, and that has to do with uh, the president's authority over uh, uh, federal agencies, and specifically the removal of authority. The Supreme Court, in another extremely important 1935 decision, Humphrey's executor, again addressed the Federal Trade Commission and held that it was not uh, an unconstitutional intrusion on the president's authority over the executive branch to restrict his ability to remove 
the commissioners of the Federal Trade Commission. This is a very important separation of powers decision. It's regarded by some as really foundational to the modern administrative state. And what was crucial to the court's holding was the view that the Federal Trade Commission was, as the court put it, a quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial body. Um, and because it was quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial and not exercising executive enforcement powers, the court thought it was okay to in, you know, limit the president's ability, and that would not intrude on his constitutional oversight of, of, of law enforcement. As my, uh, my law professor, David Curry, put it, uh, who's a wonderful uh, prof constitutional law professor, he said, you know, this is the Supreme Court decision that says that it's okay to violate Article I of the Constitution as long as you're uh, also uh, violating Articles II and III. Um, and, and, but, so that's Humphrey's executor, controversial case about the Federal Trade Commission. Fast forward now, you've got a court that is obviously not enamored of Humphrey's executor. They've made that clear in a number of decisions, including most recently uh, Celia Law. Uh, but you've got a Federal Trade Commission that is now a pretty vigorous enforcement agency. What the Supreme Court said in 1935 in explaining why it was not unconstitutional to restrict the president's ability to remove commissioners cannot be said of today's Federal Trade Commission. So, you know, just to wrap up, um, as we talk about issues like uh, you know, the administrative state, the, the, this administration's agenda, we focus a lot on what the agencies are thinking. What do they want to do? What's their agenda? But it's really important in these circumstances to look to at what the courts are saying because uh, in, in the most important cases, they do get uh, the final word. And especially when it comes to the FTC's supposed substantive unfair method of competition rulemaking authority, uh, there are very, very strong reasons to believe that aggressive action by the commission in that area will uh, not be upheld by the court and actually may set back the FTC's authorities more broadly. Great. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is regarding uh, the non-delegation doctrine and, and the Schechter poultry case that you mentioned. Um, so in 1935, we have two non-delegation cases, and those concern uh, the development of you know, fair competition rules in one instance for the petroleum industry and one instance uh, for the poultry industry. Um, but just to use an example, FTC Commissioner Phillips, uh, in his recent report, uh, has spoken about how the current FTC, you know, is seeking to essentially develop these uh, fair practice rules for the entire economy rather than just, you know, one-off industries. So my question to you is, um, what implications do you think that type of, you know, economy-wide scope has for the non-delegation doctrine and maybe also the uh, major questions doctrine? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important distinction, too, that in those two non-delegation cases, you were looking at relatively uh, industry-specific uh, actions, potentially. Uh, here, the FTC's claim is to regulate competitive practices across the economy, non-compete agreements in employment, uh, perhaps the competition practices of uh, Internet-based uh, platforms. Uh, those are very uh, broad claims, each on its own, never mind together. Uh, and I think it's part of the reason that the Federal Trade Commission, when both the major question issue and the non-delegation issue are pressed, the commission will have a hard time 
squaring what it's seeking to do here with uh, even older Supreme Court precedent, never mind with the approach the Supreme Court's been taking toward uh, these issues in recent years. Great. Uh, one other question I had regards uh, your comment on Humphrey's executor. So as you mentioned, the court there, um, of course, uh, noted that the FTC had these quasi-legislative and uh, judicial authorities. But since then, uh, the FTC has been um, provided with uh, executive authorities. And just to use the example of the, com the competition rules as well, right, we have an executive order from the president of the United States, who uh, I believe is the head of the executive branch. Um, and you know that's associated with uh, press releases and things like that, um, which with an executive order asking the FTC to do something, it at least seems to undercut the idea that the FTC is not exercising executive authority. Uh, so I, my question to you is, you know, do you see this current court uh, as willing to extend Humphrey's executor if the FTC is exercising uh, executive authority? I think when you look at uh, decisions by this court, and really going all the way back to the PCAOB case, uh, which, boy, probably 15 years ago or so now, uh, it, it's clear that the current court is not enamored of Humphrey's executor. What's much less clear is what they might want to do with it today. And what they have said is, uh, we ain't going any farther. Uh, uh, you know, anything that extends beyond what we permitted at Humphrey's executor uh, is going to be a problem. Right there, you can say, well, the FTC extends beyond because post Humphrey's executor, it was given additional enforcement authorities which change its nature. And Chad, I, I mean, I agree with the implication of your question. When you've got the chair of the Federal Trade Commission there at, with, the, with the president at the signing of what's something called an executive order, which is, I think, urging or employing or, imploring or begging the FTC to do certain things, but I kind of figure that the FTC actually wrote parts of that order anyway. Um, you know, I, it, it, that proximity toward uh, the executive branch's uh, agenda might become another, certainly a colorful fact that gets added into litigation over whether the Federal Trade Commission should now be uh, more under the authority of the president. Great, well, thank you very much. Uh, now we'll turn over to Professor Lubbers, who I understand will be responding to both of our uh, first two panelists. Um, so Professor Lubbers, over to you. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, I'm really honored to be on this panel with uh, Professor Merrill, who's certainly one of the leading scholars in the nation, and Gene Scalia, who's certainly one of the most effective lawyers in the nation. Um, however, one thing that I did learn in Japan was that if you go to the same university as somebody, <laughs> the younger graduate, the kohai, is supposed to give great respect to the elder graduate, the senpai, <laughs> and also to serve the senpai for the rest forever. <laughs> so I think I'm the senpai here. So <laughs> keep that in mind. Uh, anyway, um, since you both looked into your respective crystal balls as to what might happen if the FTC's activist agenda collides with the Supreme Court's activist agenda. I don't really feel I can second guess your expert predictions. And I, and I can't disagree that both National Petroleum Refiners and Humphrey's Executor would be vulnerable if this court took them up, especially if Gene argued the case. Um, Good idea. <laughs> but when Adam asked me to be on this panel, I think he was expecting me to provide a somewhat different take on these issues. So 
let me give you a few reactions, and I'm going to start with the major questions doctrine. Um, and I do agree with Tom's critique, I mean, um, yeah, with Tom's critique of the major questions doctrine in his paper, um, because I think what started off in the MCI case and the Brown and Williamson case as a consideration that the court should use in statutory interpretation and in undertaking the Chevron two-step analysis has, during the pandemic, morphed into an Omicron-like variant that has the potential to swallow up not only the Chevron doctrine itself, but any significant effort by an agency to use existing statutory authority to do much of anything of significance. I say potential because we don't really know what major means yet in this context. The court really hasn't spelled that out, although they've talked about it. Some of the decisions limit the doctrine to questions of vast economic and political significance, while other formulations seem to leave out the word vast. Now, Professor Merrill well explains the term majors indeterminacy and the difficulties with trying to factor in political significance and comes to the conclusion that I agree with that, and that Gene disagrees with, that an exercise of the FTC's rulemaking authority over competition matters should not be deemed to fit the paradigm of the major questions doctrine. I would also add that any doctrine that depends on Congress to provide a, quote, clear statement also suffers from the indeterminacy of the word clear, not to mention the dysfunction that prevents Congress from passing most bills, at least those that are not part of the budget reconciliation process. Now, in other regulatory realms, we know that major means regulations with over $100 million of impact on the economy. That benchmark was set by Jimmy Carter in Executive Order 12044 in 1978. In today's dollars, that would be $455 million. But in the ensuing executive orders on rulemaking, that figure has not been indexed to inflation, and it remains at $100 million. Would any rule that has over $100 million of impact thus be within the major questions doctrine? I would hope not, because I think that would be debilitating to health, safety, environmental, and consumer regulation in our country. Secondly, we've kind of glossed over the benefits of using rulemaking instead of case-by-case -case adjudication to make policy. Even though rulemaking tends to be more time-consuming, the notice and comment procedure allows broad public participation and forces the agency to respond to public comments and is generally better geared to producing the factual and policy data needed to decide questions of legislative fact and policy. Rules are also more accessible to the regulated public than adjudicative orders. And agencies can provide a more holistic policy in a single rule as opposed to numerous case precedents. Of course, case by case adjudication does have some advantages of its own, and that's why some agencies like the NLRB have tended to rely on it. But the Supreme Court early on in the Chenery II decision in 1947, reaffirmed in the Bell Aerospace decision in 74, that, quote, the choice made between proceeding by general rule or by individual ad hoc litigation is one that lies primarily in the informed discretion of the administrative agency. But of course, the agency has to have the delegated authority to issue legislative rules. And most regulatory agencies have that authority. And in numerous cases in the past, the Supreme Court has interpreted general delegations of rulemaking authority to encompass the power to make binding regulations. Many statutes, while not explicitly authorizing 
legislative rules contain language authorizing agencies to say, say and they say something like, to make such rules and regulations as may be necessary to carry out the provisions of this act. And numerous past decisions of the Supreme Court and DC Circuit have shown judicial willingness to find legislative rulemaking in such language. For example, in Thorpe v. Housing Authority in 1969, the Supreme Court interpreted HUD's statute granting it the power to, quote, make, amend, and rescind any rules and regulations as may be necessary to carry out the provisions of the, this act as giving it the power to make regulations with the force of law. And the court stated that such broad rulemaking powers have been granted in numerous other federal administrative bodies in substantially the same language. In American Hospital Association versus NLRB in 1991, the Supreme Court upheld the board's rulemaking authority in connection with bargaining unit determinations based on its statutory authority, quote, from time to time to make, amend, and rescind such rules and regulations as may be necessary to carry out the provisions of the act. The hospitals argued that another provision in the act requiring the board to determine the appropriate bargaining unit in each case undercut that authority, but the court unanimously upheld the board. And as recently as 2011 in Mayo Foundation for Medical Education and Research versus US, the court stated that the question of whether Congress, quote, delegated authority to the agency generally to make rules carrying the force of law does not turn on whether Congress's delegation of authority was general or specific. Now I realize that this may contradict Tom, Tom's forceful 2002 article with Catherine Watts, and I hesitate to do that because I'm on thin ice if I try to debate them on this, but their thesis that the general, that general rulemaking authority must be accompanied by enforcement power to give rise to the power to issue binding rules has not yet gotten much traction in the courts, with one, one exception. And the Supreme Court has never cited the article. Of course, that may very well change. Um, and a lot of courts have recognized the virtues of rulemaking. Now, my own ad law professor, Kenneth Culp Davis, once famously stated that the procedure of administrative rulemaking is one of the greatest inventions of modern government. He might have been biased, since he was one of the inventors. But he wasn't wrong. Notice and comment rulemaking has spread around the world. A 2016 World Bank study showed that over 110 countries engage in some form of notice and comment process uh, for rulemaking. As to whether antitrust is an area of the law that requires case-by-case -case adjudication and is antithetical to rulemaking, I would point out that in United Airlines versus CAB in 1985, Judge Posner upheld the CAB's authority to issue antitrust rules in an opinion in which he also mentioned some cases upholding the FCC's power to issue similar rules. Professor Pierce has suggested that the Supreme Court would be receptive to an FTC campaign to outlaw most non-compete clauses. So I guess I don't buy the idea that rulemaking should not have any role to play in FTC regulation of anti-competitive practices alongside guidelines and case-by-case -case enforcement. Finally, I want to say a word about FTC rulemaking in the consumer protection area under the Magnuson-Moss procedural requirements. We know that in 1975, Congress added Section 18 to the FTC Act to ratify the agency's power to issue trade regulation rules, but in so doing, also added a bunch of additional procedures to the APA's rulemaking process. And they had added even more in 1980 and 1994. Some have pointed to Section 18 as a reaffirmation of the DC Circuit's National Petroleum decision that the FTC did have rulemaking authority under Section 6G. 
Others have suggested it was a reaction to the decision intended to constrain the Commission's rulemaking authority. Both things could be true. And we should bear in mind that National Petroleum upheld rulemaking authority for the FTC on any subject covered by Section 5 without differentiating between unfair and deceptive practice rules on the one hand and unfair method of competition rules on the other. On the other hand, Section 18 only applies to the Unfair and Deceptive Act rules. In fact, it specifically disclaims any effect on any authority of the Commission to prescribe rules with respect to unfair methods of competition. And I, I would say, um, with respect to what Tom said on this point, it doesn't only, that section doesn't only mention interpretive rules and policy statements. It says rules including interpretive rules and policy statements. Now, te technically and maybe textually, that means that unfair competition rules, if authorized, are only subject to the APA's rulemaking pr provisions. I admit that that result seems a bit odd, but given the difficulties presented by the Section 18 MAGMOS procedures, which added 15 <coughs> additional procedural steps to the APA's process, I wouldn't blame the Commission for reading it that way. Now, in an earlier article, I documented the long delays in FTC rulemaking that occurred after the Magnuson-Moss procedures kicked in, especially after the 1980 amendments, when compared to the pre-Magmoss rulemakings or to the dozen rules that were issued by Congress's permission under the APA. The delays were so lengthy, lengthy that the FTC basically gave up on issuing new rules under Section 18 after 1980. Now, they're gearing up for another try and the FTC is, has tried to streamline their internal processes for implementing Section 18, but such internal streamlining can only go so far. That's why I've advocated for legislation allowing the FTC to use APA procedures for issuing rules, as most agencies do. Congress also almost made that change in Dodd-Frank, but it was removed in the final stages of the bill's consideration. Moreover, and I'm coming to the end here, the fact that the Supreme Court cut back on the FTC's remedial power to achieve restitution for harm consumers and disgorgement of wrongful gains in the AMG case last year means that the agency is prevented from securing monetary relief in unfair or deceptive acts cases unless the act is covered by a trade regulation rule or a cease and desist order. So this accentuates the need for the FTC to be able to issue such rules under normal APA procedures. Finally, in closing, I guess I'll say, unlike Gene and, and Jen and maybe other, many others in this room, I'm disturbed by the Supreme Court's increasingly formalistic view of separation of powers. In my view, courts have sufficient powers of judicial review to overturn agency actions as ultra-virus, arbitrary and capricious, or violative of required procedures. The Supreme Court doesn't need to tie the hands of Congress in how it structures government agencies. It doesn't need to undercut the independence of administrative law judges, nor does it need to prevent Congress from authorizing agencies to fill in the, in fill in the inevitable gaps left in legislation by legislators who are either unable to solve the complicated problems of modern society or who prefer to let the expert agencies take the lead in figuring out how to do so. Thank you. Great, thank you, Professor, for that. So I believe before opening up to audience questions, we'll uh, ask our first two participants if they would like any response. But before that, I'm gonna take the uh, moderator's privilege of asking uh, one clarifying uh, question. 
Um, so in your, in your 2015 article um, that you reference in your, in your talk, um, you, you lay out all the extra procedural requirements uh, laid upon the FTC to issue uh, rules in the consumer protection space. Yes. So I guess my, my clarifying question is, um, doesn't that demonstrate that Congress, when, when they want to grant the FTC the authority to make rulemaking, to make rules in one space, doesn't it suggest that if they didn't do that for the competition space, that the FTC doesn't have uh, the authority to make rules in the competition space, or at least would have to be subject to those you know, supra APA procedural requirements? Well, I think Professor Merrill may have the better argument on, on this point, um, but, I, but I do think that um, they, they added that provision in section 18 that said this doesn't affect the FTC's, FTC's ability to issue rules, and then they said including interpretive rules and policy statements. So as he acknowledges, you could read it as saying that you know, they were leaving that undisturbed. Now, I, I think that is a little bit um, odd to read it that way, but as I said, courts have read general rulemaking um, authorizations to allow legislative rulemaking. So I think you could make that argument. And if it's ambiguous enough, then Chevron should apply <laughs> if the major questions doctrine doesn't. If I could briefly address that, um, that's the way that argument runs. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an example of once you throw the major questions doctrine in, how far more complicated uh, the FTC's case gets here. Uh, because at best, what Congress did in this legislation that followed the National Petroleum case, which Professor Merrill described, at best what it did was dodge the question uh, whether the FTC ha had competition rulemaking authority. Uh, once what you need from Congress is a clear statement, Congress evading the question, not wanting to deal with it, not being able to reach agreement on whether there was competition rulemaking authority is, uh, is proof positive that the agency does not have it. Professor Merrill, do you have a response? Uh, a couple points, I hope you can hear me. Um, uh, first on the non-delegation doctrine, um, there, there have been, uh, uh, I think, uh, a number of uh, ways to give effect to this. The 1935 cases basically invalidated statutes for violating the non-delegation doctrine. That's proven to be difficult to replicate for the reasons that the great Justice Scalia articulated uh, in his various opinions about this. Uh, um, but another way of enforcing it um, was through something called non-delegation canons. Uh, and the idea here is that if a statute uh, seems to be giving uh, excessively vague or sweeping authority to an agency uh, in a sort of troubling fashion uh, that the case the courts ought to adopt a narrowing interpretation uh, in order to uh, obviate the uh, appearance that some kind of uh, unconstrained power has been given to an agency uh, and uh, I think that may be a more useful idea than the than the major questions approach to non-delegation major questions approach um, seems to be in practice a kind of a, a statutory interpretation version of the invalidation strategy that has proven to be unworkable. The, 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 the canon approach, I think, uh, would fit better, certainly in the FTC case, for some of the reasons that Gene articulates. Uh, um, you, you could uh, go back to the Schechter-Poultry case argument 
and say that, well, the antitrust laws are kind of open-ended, they, they're not very precise, uh, but we learn to live with them because they're applied case by case through this careful adjudication process and the building up of precedents over time. Uh, and so that uh, a, a non-delegation canon approach would say that you know we should interpret the FTC's authority to be restricted to adjudications precisely to preserve that kind of restraining uh, effect on this uh, very va- vague and, and sweeping, potentially sweeping grant of authority, uh, limiting it to adjudications uh, for the reasons that Schechter Poultry cited. I think that would be a helpful argument to make uh, if this is challenged, uh, uh, perhaps more helpful than talking about major questions. Uh, and Jeffrey sort of uh, alluded to some of my uh, problems with that, and I'll speak more about that in another session that we're having next week. Um, uh, on the uh, interpretation of general rulemaking grants, I have thought for some time that of all the things that has ha- have happened in administrative law uh, since it really got going as an enterprise, that have uh, undermined uh, the separation of powers in our Constitution. Uh, it's hard to think of anything that's been more destructive than the attitude of courts like National Petroleum Refiners and a few other decisions uh, saying that any kind of general or vague rulemaking grant authorizes legislative rulemaking by the agency. So basically, if you think about it, legislative rulemaking is the most striking a form of transfer of power from Congress to the executive branch or to whatever you want to call these agencies, uh, uh, they're basically being authorized to enact many statutes. Um, and to say that anytime Congress writes an ambiguous statute that makes some, waves its hand and says something about rules and regulations, that that means the agency can enact many statutes as a sort of junior varsity Congress to adopt another uh, aphorism of Justice Scalia. Um, strikes me as a huge transfer of power uh, from one branch from the uh, constitutionally delegated, designated branch to make uh, uh, laws for the United States uh, to another set of entities. Uh, and the fact that this was done without any serious thought by the courts uh, or any serious uh, evaluation of, of possible constraints on when this sort of interpretation was permissible, I, I think has done a huge uh, disservice. I, I, I think it should be permissible for Congress to expressly delegate this power if it thinks it's wise to do so. But if Congress hasn't thought about it and just passes one of these general grants that might just be referring to housekeeping rules or procedural rules or interpretive rules or something like that to say that all of a sudden this agency now has the power to enact enact legislative rules, uh, I think has really uh, uh, supercharged uh, the evolution of our system away from the one that uh, the Constitution contemplates. But, 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 Tom, you do, you do allow Congress to do that if they also couple it with enforcement authority. Yes. Rules. They, have to think, they have to think about it. They have to decide that they really want to do this mm-hmm. uh, before the courts can sort of, uh, on their own authority, say that, well, they must have done it uh, without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, one other point about the Schechter case. There are a couple of other distinguishing points about it. One is that these these codes were industry-developed codes, yep. um, and that you know obviously has some potential conflicts of interest. And also, there was no notice and comment aspect to it at all. There were no public comments in the development of those codes. So I think you know it's it's somewhat, and that's why Justice uh, Cardozo went along with calling right. it a delegation running riot. Yeah, and if I could just make one more point about that too, um, 
Uh, Todd Rakoff at Harvard has argued that the reason why the delegations in Schechter Poultry and Panama refunding were struck down was because the National Industrial Recovery Act was a trans-substantive act that applied to the entire American economy. Now, it's true that in those specific cases, there were specific industries that were being uh, affected by their codes, but this was an attempt to regulate the entire economy of the United States. Uh, uh, and that may have given the court a uh, very great pause as to whether this kind of delegation uh, is something that we want uh, Congress to be able to make. And I, I think Gene's right that effectively the, what the FTC is asking for, coupled with its the, the vagueness of the antitrust laws, uh, is basically a tantamount to what the National Industrial Recovery Act did. All right, uh, we'll turn over open to audience questions. I believe we have microphones if you want to raise your hand. Any questions? As people question whether they have questions, looks like there's one here. Um, I just did want to commend to those of you interested in this topic, uh, Professor Merrill's, was it 2005 article with Catherine Watts. It really is an interesting history of congressional grants of rulemaking authority and uh, is something the FTC will need to contend with as these issues start being litigated. Um, the big question I think that uh, Professor Lubbers brings up about how rulemaking adjudicatory uh, rulemaking occurs worldwide, um, Your Honor and um, Professor Merrill, can you address like how the U.S. Antitru antitrust laws shouldn't why we shouldn't have that similar structure? Why is rulemaking a bad thing? I think it would be helpful. Or if, if it is. <laughs> well, you, may, you might find it hard to explain why it's a bad thing. Oh, he was asking you, I think. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think it might be a good thing, although I do recognize that antitrust um, might lend itself more to case-by-case -case adjudication than some other areas. I, I, I'm not opposed to rulemaking. I think that rulemaking in some circumstances can be a very good way of proceeding. Uh, it's uh, a particularly powerful, transformative uh, tool, uh, more so than uh, obviously case-by-case -case adjudication. And that's why uh, people concerned about uh, violations of separation of powers, concerned about a limited administrative state, uh, would say that well, if we're going to have rulemaking, let's at least have that authority uh, clearly conferred, first of all, because it is a big step. And then secondly, let's have it clearly defined, uh, because Congress needs to do its job, not punt its job to agencies which are less accountable. Um, and, and so I think when those uh, requirements are satisfied, rulemaking uh, is much less controversial. And I think Jeff, you know, he makes very good points. Uh, about some of the benefits that it could exist when you have notice and comment rulemaking. He had to say that because I'm the elder. <laughs> <laughs> and wiser. I, I'm a big fan of notice and comment rulemaking myself. Uh, I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense in the antitrust context, however, um, largely because I don't think there's any evidence that courts really know what they're doing in this area. Um, uh, you know, uh, we've had... Um, uh, many, many decades of experience here. We've gone from big is bad and little is good to consumer welfare is the answer to back to big is bad and little is good, uh, this neo-Brandeisian movement that the FTC seems to have embraced. I think uh, but the, nobody really knows for sure exactly uh, what works, and the economy is so dynamic and has a way of sort of uh, washing over practically every uh, 
stop that the antitrust laws seem to have uh, put in place. Uh, you know, Microsoft was going to be evil. IBM before that was going to, you know, monopolize everything. And technology just basically rendered all these things moot. So I think case by case is maybe good because it sort of acts as a kind of uh, uh, bump, many, multiple bumps in the road to letting courts uh, do things that turn out to be bad ideas. I think if you read the Posner opinion in that United Airlines case, he discusses that question and, and really frames it in terms of whether or not there had to have been, should have been a right to a hearing during the rulemaking process to, to answer disputed issues of material fact. And he decided that there didn't have to be in this particular rule. But he talked a lot about whether antitrust was amenable to rulemaking. By the way, I, I, I'm not an antitrust lawyer. I've had some antitrust case experience over the years. No expert. But uh, as somebody who's observed the courts and the Justice Department and the FTC in this area, I, I will say that if the FTC proceeds with a kind of rewrite of the guidelines that's uh, been talked about together with the Justice Department, I think it would be a very sad day because uh, Tom's right. and The courts do have uh, limited capacity to deal with uh, antitrust law. The guidelines have been a really respected uh, bipartisan effort for decades that have guided the courts. Uh, but I think it's a grave mistake for the administration to believe that uh, the guidelines can continue to command that kind of respect and deference and yet depart so sharply from the method and consensus which has uh, underlain them so far. It's precisely because they were not uh, perceived as a politicized, aggressive, but rather consensual, that courts were comfortable uh, giving them weight. All that changes when it seemed to be the exercise of a particular movement coming out of the academy at this moment. Great. Any other questions? Right there in the back middle. Yeah, hey. Um, recently, there was legislation that has been proposed that would, uh, among other things, um, require certain large social media companies to submit uh, evidence of any harms that the algorithm might cause to the FTC for review. Uh, now, I, you know, the sort of thing where you give that sort of discretion to an executive agency, um, in addition to things like broadening the rulemaking authority, seems to me to be an opportunity for political incentives to enter into the system and to kind of undermine the notion of consumer welfare, which we've upheld until now. Uh, so, so to what degree do you see this expansion of rulemaking that they're kind of lobbying for uh, resulting in you know, concerns that really don't have much to actually do with consumer welfare creeping in and changing the way we do antitrust? I mean, if they're just asking for information, and to review the information, that doesn't seem too worrying. I mean, there's kind of Paperwork Reduction Act concerns about that sort of thing. But, <laughs> but I mean, other than that, you know, FTC does engage in a lot of information gatherings so they can figure out, figure out what, what to do. We heard about that this morning with respect to hospitals. So information gathering itself doesn't bother me, what they do with it. And I think the FTC should take some interest in, in, in artificial intelligence, you know, algorithms that are, that are being used, because they might be unfair. I guess the issue is that uh, they also have discretion to determine exactly what harm is 
Um, and that's, the, that's where there's a problem, not in the review of information itself. Yeah, I mean, I would want to know that there's some significant uh, harm, uh, some notable market failure, uh, and the like, before signing on to something like that. And the, I, I will also say that uh, you know, we've got some internet economy uh, companies that don't have a lot of friends on either side of the aisle right now. Uh, but I think that ends up being a bad reason to further empower an agency that uh, already raises constitutional questions and, and that uh, is threatening to raise more. On, on the consumer side, the FTC has announced an advance notice of proposed rulemaking under Magnuson Moss procedures, and it's called the Commercial Surveillance and Data Security Rule. It's just a, not even a proposed rule yet, but that's the first one that they've launched in quite a while. All right, well, we are right on time, so everyone please join me in thanking our panelists for coming today.